Hello, this is Saul Luckman. It's my pleasure to welcome you to Conversations on Saul Luckman Uncensored, sponsored by snoozetoawaken.com, resources for lucidity. For more information about my work, including a lot of cutting-edge free content, check out crowrising.com. I'm also on Telegram, where I'm sharing daily truth bombs at t.me slash soulluckman, and I'm absolutely crushing it on Substack at soulluckman.substack.com. If you appreciate what I'm doing here in interviewing some of the greatest minds and hearts in the whole truth and nothing but community, please take a second to give this video and channel some love energy exchange. Comment, like, subscribe, and by all means, consider buying me a cup of coffee that I'll be sure to savor with the toast in your honor. Today, I'm thrilled to welcome the man, the myth, the legend, Eric Coppolino of planetwaves.fm fame. In addition to producing fascinating astrological content, Eric boasts a, a, an extraordinary history of exposing everything from science fraud to cover-ups involving environmental pollution. He was among the first to begin poking holes in the official COVID-19 narrative and recently stirred up a veritable firestorm by revealing a darling of the health truth movement to be a total charlatan. More about that momentarily. Thanks so much for coming on the show, Eric. How are you? My pleasure, Saul. Great to finally be here. Yeah, I mean, I've, I've been following your stuff for, you know, really a couple years now and uh, have been meaning to reach out. Um, I saw a great chat you had with uh, Dr. Sam Bailey uh, several months back. I saw the Regis uh, a recent interview after the, um, the uh, aforementioned article came out uh, that you published that mm -hmm. caused the, uh, the old firestorm. So, uh, yeah, uh, this, is a, this is good timing. Good. Well, anything is uh, on the agenda that you want. All right. So um, I guess, you know, I, I want to leave some of the um, some of the, the virus virology stuff for maybe later in our discussion. That way, maybe I can actually put the first part of this on YouTube. <laughs> mm -hmm. <laughs> but I'm not so sure. Uh, let's start from an astrological standpoint. And I would love to hear your perspective uh, that I've been following to some degree on, on uh, the kind of short, medium, and long term as you see things playing out, I don't know, um, for, for a topic, perhaps. What about for freedom in the world? How, how, could, you, how could you walk us through uh, what you see happening to that precious concept over the next few months, the next few years, and maybe even beyond? Because that really seems to be the crux of what we've been dealing with in some, some ways for the last two, two plus years. Yep. And, and freedom to most people is a concept. It's not a real thing. Um, it's not this thing that they exercise. When, when someone actually exercises their freedom, it's very daring. It's not like going to Disney World. Um, th there's a real sense of, oh my God, am I actually doing this? And uh, I don't know very many people who do that at all or, or very often. Uh, but I think in another sense, freedom is just our ability to move around, right? If we, if we take it kind of on the simpler level, I can go to the store and buy whatever groceries I want, right? That, that kind of thing. And I think we are coming into a time when that is actually under threat. So in the, um, I'm happy asking about astrology. I don't get to talk about it very often, except on my own channels. Um, 
what we saw happen with COVID was a subset of a much larger thing uh, that I, I observe involves a new jurisdiction, a new global jurisdiction created by the digital environment. Uh, now I'm you know, seeing articles in the New York Times and elsewhere declaring that globalism is over. And I would say, no, globalism has just begun because now suddenly we, we are on a new planet where uh, authorities that we never elected have the power uh, to re reach across national borders and violate both national sovereignty and individual sovereignty and set policies that move through the digital sphere at the speed of light uh, and then somehow are taken seriously. Uh, and this is a problem that most people have not reckoned yet. Um, when we ask ourselves, for example, how the world went on March 1st, 2020 to basically its old normal self to on March 31st, 2020, having uh, 4.4 billion people ordered to stay home under house arrest locked and actually locked in their homes. We really need a good explanation for that. And the only explanation that I can see is digital, the digital environment. And this brings me to what looks like is shaping up between essentially now and March of 2023, which is that it, it looks like there is going to be some kind of a diversionary event, some smoke and mirror uh, kind of cloud raised uh, sometime in the, in the last two weeks of October. Um, it, it could be in November. Uh, this, the, the, the aspect I'm talking about holds steady all through basically uh, late October, in, in, well into the late autumn here in the Northern Hemisphere. What then happens is that in March, that starts to wear off and there is a new thing that happens, which to me looks like some kind of a takeover in the digital realm. Now, remember, we woke up on Planet Digital one day. We were, we were all normally living our lives uh, and, and no, nobody told us that we woke up on a different planet one morning and no one really knows when it was. And, you know, maybe for different people, it was on different days, but we woke up on a different planet, a planet that was completely digitized that on the one hand gave us the ability to communicate with our friends in China or somewhere riding along on the D train in Manhattan, but at the same time also gave uh, these kind of rogue organizations uh, the ability to email out policies uh, and essentially have everyone just kind of go along with them. Mm -hmm. And so we live in this global um, we live in this global jurisdiction now that is completely controlled by the digital realm. And um, Pluto changes signs in March. Uh, Pluto does not change signs very often. The last time this happened was in 2008. And 2008 was when the, uh, the, the subprime mortgage crisis mm. morphed into the Great Recession and uh, banks around the world seemed to collapse and uh, economies were, entire economies were bailed out and uh, presidential campaigns put on hold. John McCain, I don't think ever re reanimated his. Uh, and that, that was just from Pluto changing signs into Capricorn 
and that was the last time Pluto changed signs. So now we're back with Pluto changing signs. Finally, it's right at the end of Capricorn, uh, and it makes its first foray into Aquarius in March. And Aquarius is the sign of all things electronic. It's also the sign of all things social and elitist. And its main property is not peace and love and understanding and the awesome baseline. Um, you know that one member from fifth and the fifth dimension sure, doing really it. Not. It's not that groovy. Uh, Aquarius is a Aquarius, yes. huh? What's that? Not the age of Aquarius. Well, we are the the evidence indicates that we are in the age of Aquarius because patterns form so quickly and seem to render themselves permanent. And these patterns are largely driven by uh, the total immersion in digital technology that is undermining all of the individuality and distinction, differentiation and national boundaries of the literate era, the print era, which is basically gone. Right, right. I was so, yeah. So you see where I'm going with this Pluto going into Aquarius? It looks like some kind of a move. And then the move is going to be electronic. I am in my worst case scenario, they roll out the central bank crypto. Um, and how do you roll out the central bank crypto, but with an, an economic crisis? Now, I know that every other every other vlogger, blogger and commentator is talking about this. Um, it does appear to be a real thing, something that is actually happening. And, and while I'm not predicting this, I'm concerned about it uh, because the astrology is just so descriptive of, of some kind of plutonic total control force moving into this electronic and digital realm of Aquarius. Following me here? I'm following you. I, I mean, it brings up a lot of questions. And I, I mean, I don't want to totally sidetrack your train of thought, but I was wondering if you could respond to another current that seems to be in play here, which is the rise of populism. We're seeing that in Sweden, we're seeing that in Italy, of course, that's going on here in this country as well, in Brazil mm -hmm. and other places, Hungary. And that seems to run contrary to the, um, the seeding of power and sovereignty willy-nilly to whatever bullies in Brussels or globalist uh, uh, think tanks or CDCs or WHOs that might be out there. So do you see that as in any way running uh, uh, as a kind of um, counteractive force or do you think that there's something more Machiavellian about all of this? Well, I'm curious your relationship between populism and individuality. Populism seems like a tribal movement to me, doesn't it? I simply mean that a lot of people who espouse populist ideologies don't like large agencies controlling their everyday reality. And they, they, they would respond politically by putting people into, into office who in theory would also share those, um, you know, those thought processes. Well, I, I guess who you put into office uh, largely depends upon who controls, who gets onto the ballot. Um, however, the, the, the intent that people say that they have, to me almost seems perfectly irrelevant. What's the difference what they say they believe 
if they're acting in a tribal manner, then they're going to get a tribal result. And I, I don't think of these movements as largely being anything more than pastimes where people say something and then don't really do anything about it. They come out to a protest, but what's that's the, we're not talking Selma here. We're not talking about the Woolworth lunch counter. We're talking about just kind of an irrelevant marching in the streets that is not about taking action. We think that's action, but I don't think it is. Yeah, I'm thinking more along the lines of political movements, and I'm not really um, saying that I believe in the efficacy of politics to to bring about any large-scale positive social change necessarily, but I am, I am looking at political current and the people who are going to be stepping into offices in a lot of places and gaining control of government majorities are, um, you know, definitely not... Um, cut from the same cloth as what we have seen in the era of globalism leading up to this. Now, ultimately, they could be shaking hands behind the scenes. <laughs> Who knows? You know, there's a lot of yeah. different ways to look at that. But we are looking at very large kind of seismic changes going on in Italy and Sweden that are just very interesting. Well, I mean, that may be, but I, I still uh, would assert that everyone is still under the hypnotic haze of the digital environment and are, are likely to do the thing that is to be done in the digital environment. Yeah, and you may very well be right about that. You know, that's, um, that is a very strong uh, motif and force. I mean, you, 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 there was a quote by Marshall McLuhan that you brought out in your, your chat with Regis that I really liked, um, that was about the digital environment and about, uh, um, the, that environment being like, um, acid or, yeah. or, or bankers or for um, yeah, LSD for the businessman. Yeah. LSD. What was the and, quote? Because I went looking for it and I couldn't find it. I thought it was, I, I'm not sure where it's written. I'm, I'm not sure. I was just refreshing my memory on, um, understanding media mm -hmm. today. And then also on the, the laws of media, I got a good, oopsie. I got a good scolding from, um, one of the kind of uh, senior McLuhan guys that I was not properly understanding uh, Queen Elizabeth as a television figure when I'm, I was trying to argue that she was a radio figure, but nonetheless, I don't know where he said that. Uh, I can ask Andrew, but the quote is that the computer is LSD for the businessman. And um, what it means to me is that it creates a completely alternate reality like someone tripping on LSD. Most of us have done some entheogenic substance or gotten a little high on pot and it creates an alternate reality and um uh, and the 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 illusion of control um and it's a disembodied state of being you're not really fully you know in your right mind which being embodied is more about being sane than having a good downward facing dog. And now the whole world <laughs> is um, right. Cause a lot of people are doing a great thing, doing fabulous down, downward facing dog, gorgeous butt, but they're nuts. They're nuts. They're wearing masks and hot yoga. So what, the, so what where's your pranayama baby? So, um, <laughs> so um, no offense or anything, but uh, so we now live in this parallel universe we, we are living in this bifurcated world where and anything that might have some bearing or impact on the physical world is terrifying in this hallucination 
the body exists as little more than a disease vector and thing to inject medicines into. Right, right. Right. Yeah, and I mean, my, some bizarre yes. human is direction for uh, unknown threats. Say that again, please. And to take in some bizarre transhumanist direction for uh, to be determined uh, threats. Well, collective, I suppose. So, so think of it this way. Let's imagine you have two rooms side by side, right? Two, you know, they're like classrooms, or or and and in one room you've got a bunch of people who are really high on LSD, right? Full dose, they're all tripping. In the next room you have a meeting of the teachers union and they're all stone cold sober and talking about whether they're going to request a 2.5% salary increase or a 2.75% salary increase. Okay. So now imagine someone walks into the room full of people who are tripping and says, there's an evil demon loose. It's coming. It's about to be here right now. You're going to upset a good few of those people. If you then walk into the meeting of the teachers union and say, there's an evil demon on the loose, it's coming to get you right now, they're going to say, excuse me, get this person out of here. So it is into the mindset that the threat is entered that determines whether it's taken seriously. And it was into this room of people tripping balls that this threat this invisible headless horseman entity threat was introduced and scared the bejesus out of everyone scared made them scared of their children and their parents i, I i've never even heard of a time in history when that maybe historians know when that when that happened but terrified people to the point where they couldn't even invite their mother to dinner I mean, really, I that's what you almost have to create a psychedelically induced environment that is susceptible to some kind of fear vector coming in to control the thought processes and behaviors of those people. The McLuhan quote suggests that, you know, it doesn't it's actually if that's a quote and I would love to see it. That's why I wanted to see exactly what he was saying, because it doesn't necessarily mean that the bankers or the businessmen are the ones on acid. They may at the time giving, they may be giving the, the drugs to the population to make more money because they're bankers and businessmen. Ah, uh, well, that happened. I mean, at the time, computers were very scantily used. I mean, my first exposure to a computer was um, somebody had one at work and they printed out a picture of an old car on that wide, like uh, 14 inch tractor paper, you know, with the green oh, yeah. and white stripes. Yeah. And when you look closely, you would see it was like ampersands and parentheses and numbers and which were used as pixels. And then my second exposure was a pocket, a hand calculator that, you know, an AI device that could add, subtract, multiply and, and divide. So um, they, were, they were very poorly known. Of course, computers have their initial, uh, let's say, debut during World War II with the the Brits uh, working with Turing to crack the Enigma code and the Nazis working with the American companies to borrow computers to keep track of concentration camp victims. So computers, you know, algorithmic devices are, you, you know, happening during World War II. And mean, look at that. I mean, this is a good example of the, you know, po point of origin. 
uh, but also of the content neutrality, right? You've got Turing on the one hand cracking the Heydrich Enigma, the, the <laughs> German code machine, and then you, on the other hand, you've got you know IBM lending computers to the Nazis. Oh yes, oh yes, definitely. Right. So con content neutral. So it's very interesting, uh, you know, somebody like a McLuhan looking into the future at the time, I mean, how aware was he of where all of this could go? I mean, he was a very smart guy, right? So he was upset. You know, I've read clues in his writing that he said, if we keep going down this path, good things are not going to happen. And he and he was not one to judge. But I'm not sure where I read that. It, you know, the material is uh, is far flung. Um, but he did say that if we keep going down this path, there's not a good end to this. So here we are. I mean, going back to the astrology uh, for the moment, the, you know, we're looking at some kind of event. I've heard I've heard some speculation about some kind of fake Carrington event, something that could, you know, impact aspects of the grid or the electronic mm. system and they reboot it. And then because it destroyed data or whatever, they have to changes to a digital system so that we have a new system of bookkeeping, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, who knows how all this could play out, but obviously, uh, you know, that's looking at the kind of dark side of the blockchain where we're under total surveillance. Is there a way out of this? Do you see this going into total darkness or are we going to kind of go through a period of recalibration and begin to come back to our senses? Are we going to come down off of the trip and, and think uh, rationally again? Oh, well, we, there's no going back. I, I think that we have to awaken from the trance within it, <clears throat> which is not easy. I'm, I'm pretty psychically mobile, and I can't lucid dream at will, but it would be something like that. <coughs> Pardon me. And McLuhan, over and over, I think one of the statements he makes the most, and that I like the most, is that art is the only way out of this. The, the only way, so he defines an artist who's someone who does not fall asleep with their tools. Everybody else either falls asleep or the, the sensation of involvement is so powerful that they have to withdraw, and that withdrawing makes kind of a numbing out, and that's the digital haze. Mm. And, and what he's saying is we really have to stay awake in the midst of this and not not numb out and to to keep using the, these tools for creative purposes creative doesn't mean for the amassing of power and, and and creative does not mean for the amassing of influence or the making of money creative means creating creative means kind of what we're doing which is metalog we're having a conversation with ideas that are arising in the process of the discussion um, we're, you know, we're, we're doing something that's also very on digital, which is we're not injecting the audience with cortisol. <laughs> we're being, we're being friendly to one another. We're not being blatantly hostile. Uh, we're not attacking anyone. And I think we're conscious of the fear factor as a kind of a variable rather than a given. Hmm? Meaning you don't have to go there. Well, we're talking about what are the options? You know, what what are the what are the options for waking up? Just just asking that question all by itself is mitigating 
of, of bad things, mitigating of fear, I think, and, and uh, expressing to people that they do have options. The thing is that the options they have are, for many people, difficult because their lives are so busy, uh, their lives are so constrained by this complete time sink of, of, digital, uh, of, the, of the digital environment. Uh, so they feel like they've got no spare time, right? Computers are supposed to be labor-saving devices, <laughs> but but you know we're on them like in front of screens like a lot of the of the time, and there's always something new to do. It's like a farm; there's always something that has to happen. Um, so it's challenging to really bring your creativity. Plus, people have been so numbed out; they've been so talked out of the out of their ability to to create. Personally, I feel quite awake because no matter what technology I've, I've got in my hands, I mean, and I'm I'm still partial to you know these things and clip, <laughs> clipboards, and I you know I here's my iPad. Like, see, I have an iPad. Isn't it nice? Last one, yeah, I like that. It's the iPad two um, A, and um, erase erasable. Um, I feel like whenever I do something in front of a computer, I'm alive. I try to make every email at least a little bit funny uh, to, you know, to kind of have some love in the air and uh, 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 relief from fear, which I think is what laughter is, humor is. Um, and we, we need to do that. And I think that reading would help. I mean, a lot of reading would help. Reading books, not Kindles. Just reading of any book. Yeah, any book, reading any book, lots of books, well, continuously, always have a book that, that you're reading because a book gives connected knowledge. The book gives depth knowledge. The, 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 the book forces you to think in terms of a longer story arc and, and a more complex uh, equation rather than this uh, fragmented communication in the, in the digital environment where there's almost no continuity. I mean, it's the craziest busy box of all. You know, it's you know the, as a writer, I've occasionally had readers, members of my audience say that, oh, there's no real difference between the ebook and, and the paperback or whatever. And I'm like, uh, what planet are you on? You know, yeah. you're actually holding something in your hands like a lover or a baby when you're reading mm -hmm. a book in the real world. That's a very intimate experience. Yep. And I personally can't read without a pencil in my hand. I mean, it's, it almost feels like going outside without shoes on. I, I, I want to be able to sort of like fight back <laughs> against the book and underline things or put in question marks. So I've always got one of these in my hand when I'm reading. And you maybe can do that with a PDF on some level, but it's not the same. You can't doodle in the margins. You can't write your own book in the in the margins of your kindle i can write a whole yeah, book in the margins great, of great aggression you know also just the force of being <laughs> able to stab the page if you really need to yes you can you can even tear it up you can burn it you can rip the page out but you can also put it on a copier machine and make a new piece of artwork out of it i guess you can do that with digital yeah. but i never found kindles remotely appealing i mean not even close like it never would occur to me to you get one of those things. Yeah, they're like the Starbucks of literature. You know, I mean, and are they copy and pasteable? Are they searchable? P PDFs are as far as I'll go for that. 
kind of a thing. They're handy. You can do some of that with Kindle. It's just they, you know, I'm coming out with an art book in the next several months. So it's a bunch of illustrations that I've done with a story attached to it. Right. Mm -hmm. And, you know, Kindle is a disaster because you can't make it look good. You basically no. cannot publish no. a beautiful art book this way in a PDF to a certain extent you can, because it mm -hmm. will mirror the real book. But a Kindle is just like the common core of literary expression. It is the worst possible dumbing down of the medium. Yeah, there's no book design to it. None. It's just rudimentary and stupid. Really, really stupid. Yes, there's some search, search functions and that kind of thing. And you can quickly uh, click through to the bibliography if you're looking for a reference or in notes or that kind of thing. That's, I suppose, helpful. But mostly, I find that it's a big letdown. Yeah, I, yes. I can read some on the internet, but I, I make sure I have, always have a book with me or near me. So, so one of the questions that has come up, you know, in thinking about this kind of um, simulated reality, this mm. matrix, matrixy uh, thing that we're in, is, you know, how far does it go? And this is an area of my, my research that I'm, I'm deeply embedded in at the moment. I looked up my first pu published book, Conscious Healing, that came out like in 05, and I looked up the word hologram or holograph, holographic, how many times I used that word, and it was an absurd number of times. I mean, it kind of mm -hmm. embarrassing because I'm like, can't you come up with a synonym? You know, you just keep saying the same thing over and over again. Well, it's tough, really, right? It's a hard one. Really, I've been fascinated with this concept for a long time, and I write about the uh, Heisenberg uncertainty principle and this idea that our observation can actually impact the performance of reality or the way it behaves. And I've had some people say, well, really, that's as far as it goes. It doesn't really mean, it doesn't really mean that you're kind of creating your reality. And I'm like, well, where do you draw the line? Well, it seems incredibly arbitrary. Where, where are you on this discussion? Because this is like, how, how simulated is the reality? Is it completely simulated? Are we simulated? Well, okay, that, that's, that, I'm, I'm not sure there's prob probable cause to go as far as are we simulated now, but we are certainly being, um, you know, being shaped. As I said on the Regis Tremblay interview, we're, we're becoming like AI devices a lot more quickly than they're becoming like us. You know, on, on these days when you have to talk into your phone uh saying every word individually one word at a time where it's almost like typing or when you're trying to talk to the voice system in your bank which can't seem to get anything right it can't even hear the numbers that you're saying to get your account number right and uh and then you're trying to wonder which which of these combinations of buttons gets me to a person and god don't i miss people we're becoming like them much faster than, than they're becoming like us. Um, I, I think that the, the speed with which people were willing to turn up at the injection site and, uh, and, and be injected with, with, with what was admittedly computer code, whether or not you think there actually was any in those injections, Moderna put right on its website that it was like a, uh, a, a so software application, a, a, a operating system, a, you know, a digital platform. That's how they presented their mRNA injection. Yep. 
and and so pretty much look it really reminds me of Jonestown uh where they just rang the bell they mixed up the purple drink and uh and and a huge number of people went for it uh including giving it to their children and their dogs and and those who didn't would, were forced to do it at gunpoint and and that sounds like the kind of experiment that we went through in 2021 uh where they basically got all of society to gang up on its teachers and ambulance drivers and fi firemen um making them do do this thing whether they wanted to do it or not and a lot of people knew it wasn't a good thing but they did it because they felt like they were being forced to uh so that's very Jonestown and so you can look at that as a thing that happened in society or you can take it as a kind of a um dr drill that we were that we were put through so in terms of where this can all go well, I think that uh, chips writer also let people. Please go. I wanted just to to in support of what you're saying, the whole Milford experiment, mm. you know, where people were basically uh, uh, being tortured to appease authorities, or or doing it to other people. Yeah, they're being made to torture to appease authority. Almost all of them went for it. A majority just went for it, including up to the point of some inflicting what they were told would be potentially lethal shocks. So really, there is a, a science, um, a science uh, uh, history or foundation that you know behind these concepts that we're talking about, and then then we experience some kind of large scale rollout of that thought process, that type of thinking into our 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 pandemic or whatever you want to call it. Well, it was introduced into the digital environment. I mean, I think that's really important. It was introduced into digitized people. Um, where you know where I made this discovery was when I wrote an article in uh, June of um, of of 2020, um, wh wherein I basically said that the the Woodstock Festival in 1969 was uh, was held in the middle of the Hong Kong flu, which had already been said to have killed a hundred thousand people on that on the day they held the festival and what amazed me was when i called the, the well first of all the founder of the festival michael lang i i had an email dialogue with him for many years and he and i asked him if they knew or cared and he said it was not a concern at the time that is amazing and then I then I reached to Elliot Landy, who I've they, you know I, I live near Woodstock, New York, which has some kind of weird connection to the festival. So a lot of the Woodstock people wound up in Woodstock, even though the festival was held seventy miles away. And Landy, who is a you know professional photographer, I consider these to be extremely situationally aware people, said, "Nope, neither me nor my wife had any clue." Uh, then, uh, then I, I rounded up the author of a very, very funny book about Woodstock. One, one of the first that came out called Barefoot in Babylon, a guy named Bob Spitz, famous rock music writer. Mm -hmm. uh, and I, and I, and I said, <laughs> I wrote to him, uh, you know, were you aware that the Hong Kong flu was happening at the, at the time of Woodstock? And he said, what? You know, he wrote me back a snippy Kurt email. <laughs> what, you, what, what, what was happening? No. We had no, no idea. Like, uh, okay. really? 
so then I, I <laughs> just to be sure, I went I went to the bookstore in Woodstock and bought a copy of the book. And no, it's not in there. So what you've got in the analog world is um, is is some three, four, five, four hundred thousand kids uh, on this field, uh, which was a cow shit field because it was a cow pasture, and they're hanging out and loving it up in the in the mud, and sharing everything, and they're hanging out. They're they're not afraid of one another's bodies. Like that's the thing you really see if you watch the the the, the official, the really amazing official uh, documentary of of the event. They're yeah, not right. afraid. What's that? you're absolutely right about that. It's re it's remarkable. So then you look at 2020, 2020, and they've got all these parks around the country with with these kind of gold creases in in chalk that they draw little dots mm. and, and people are sitting in their little dot. They don't want to be near anyone else. That's the digital world. It's an interesting distinction uh, the, the analog versus the digital applied to this, this phenomenon. I think it, I think it really does hold water. It's very useful. Mm -hmm. And the fear, the, the consequent fear, the, the alienation, uh, the, the lack of any camaraderie or sense of love or, or community support, the complete mindlessness of thinking that you're sitting in one dot and there's a breeze blowing and the guy in the next dot could be, you know, spewing Coronas, you know, and like the breeze is blowing right to you, but you're safe. You have that little dot that you're in. This is the mentality that, that is so frightening. It is unhuman. It is cruel. It is plainly stupid and illogical, and yet it was basically considered the thing to do. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. I, I published a, a Substack article today that I had written back and I republished it. I wrote it back in 2020, and uh, the title is um, um, What Part of Masks Don't Work Don't You Understand? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I replied and said, well, they work for someone. Right, right. Uh, they, they work for the people who want us to not look at each other's facial expressions. Yeah, I mean, there's uh, agendas within agendas around all of that. And so I got one of these, what I call half-truthers, who responded, who has a substack uh, presence. Half-truthers. Okay, yeah, there, you know, there's the real truthers, <laughs> I think, you know, and we would be in that group. I, you know, I would, I would uh, be so bold as to say that you are one, one of those. Um, and then there's the half-truthers, and we can talk more about exactly what I mean by that. Well, let me just lay it out a little bit. The half-truther is somebody who is willing to entertain that the jabs are possibly a bad idea and under-researched and that kind of thing, and that we shouldn't be doing them in this way. And that's about as far as it goes. Mm -hmm. <laughs> maybe, maybe masks are bad, that sort of thing. But the, you know, questioning the existence of viruses and that kind of thing that has become kind of like old hat. Like I, I feel like I've gone down the rabbit hole so far and for so long that it's almost become normalized. And now I get it. I kind of see what's going on. But this person was perfectly willing to agree that masks are bad, but, you know, saw fit to lecture me on the virus question. But then so many of these people have been so common core, they're like saying, well, obvious, and this is a kind of well-known writer who's, who literally says that Koch's postulates don't really apply to viruses 
because they were invented for bacteria. Mm -hmm. And then he went on to say that, you know, you have bacteria, which are alive and viruses, which are not. And that's the crux of the problem. And I'm, and, and I'm thinking, so basically you're saying that because of the alive versus dead dynamic, you could you could isolate and purify a living ant out of a soup, but you would never be able to isolate and purify a dead termite from the soup. You know, yeah. living uh, and dead thing is so random. And then the weirdest thing was, I just felt like I was in a twilight zone. He said that he was pointing out to me that staph and strep are viruses in the system that cause illness and i'm like mm -hmm. you heard that right i'm like i'm like okay mayo clinic streptococcus bacterium mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. you know but it's really really weird so we have these spokesmen for the half truthers who who engage in all this ad hominem attacking and ultimately, and they, they can sound very intelligent. And then when mm. you drill down into their logic and rationale, they have been common core to the core. They have lost the ability to reason and to look at data and analyze it with a logical capability. Yeah, that's a literacy function. It's a literacy. That's why I keep bringing up common core because I don't have a better way of explaining exactly where that might come from but it's an educational literacy function and it might be part part of the digital no 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 what i'm saying is that to structure an argument is literacy oh yes whereas in uh, especially scientific you really don't have you can't have scientific arguments as debates it's just pointless you you have to be able to make people stick to what they said yesterday yeah. and you have to have a data set that exists in print and that doesn't change that you can then interpret. And so what I, I think that it, it, in a way it's um, a bit self-defeating to say that viruses don't exist. What, what, what I suggest that uh, everyone say is that, yeah, viruses exist inside of computer programs called in silico sequences. Yeah, They're definitely there. You can see them there. There's uh, 12 million versions of SARS-CoV-2 in various different uh, gene, ba gene bank type databases, 12 million of them as of today, yeah. right? Um, so that's something. So I think when people hear viruses don't exist, it leaves a hole in the universe. And I like to tell them what that <laughs> hole is filled with, which is this metagenomic transcript. Well, how, you say that a virus exists. Okay, this is the conversation I keep trying to have with a lot of people, including guys like Jeremy Hammond. Okay, you say there's a virus. After what the, is that uh, thing? Okay, it's MN908947.3. That's SARS-CoV-2, or maybe it's 402123, or maybe it's 402125. Oh, which one is it? Who knows? None of that has ever been shown to come from a biological entity known as a virus. None of it's been shown to cause disease, but it, it exists in a computer, so therefore it must be right. Therefore, get your software upgrade. So do you relate that to the digital homo digi digitalis or 
know, I mean, that's a, that's a kind of entheogen the, joke. Yeah. You mean they're only gay online? Oh, that's funny. <laughs> Great. Yeah, it's like a, a mandate, right? Would be a, a gay date. So, <laughs> mandate. Um, <laughs> uh, no, but you know what? That is funny because we do live in the time of, you know, ma ma mandates in a way. Because now it's a criminal act for a man to be attracted to a woman. Well, you're right about that. You're right about that. It's very, very bizarre what's what's happening with with that whole sphere. Which I think is another digital effect also. I mean, I, I think that it is the digital effect. And the Course of Miracles was talking about this in um, in the 60s, right? That's that that work is channeled in the 60s. And and over and over again, it says things like the, the body is the symbol of the attack on God. And so what you wind up with with the, the, the physical body in the digital age is simply a either a disease vector or attack vector. It's ridiculous. Wow. Wow. Yeah, that's. I, I had never thought about that particular um, sentiment from A Course in Miracles in that way. That's that's very interesting. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so. Um, you know, in, into this whole simulation conversation, you, the analog, the digital, I really, I really like how that applies. And I like how you can use, I mean, I, how you can use digital means to kind of brainwash or gaslight or whatever people, but you know, like the, the, the Milford experiments, obviously that was in a different era where that wasn't actually going on. These were like real people in the room with people, the, mm -hmm. the, um, the Guyana situation, the, the uh, Jim Jones thing, that was also real people. So we're talking about examples of very strange uh, groupthink and, and odd uh, self-destructive behavior happening in analog situations as well. Yes, certainly people can be conditioned under analog conditions but it was not it was certainly not as easy uh, as it is now to essentially make a fiat and uh, it, it could easily happen with the with the monetary system where they just declare by fiat that you now no longer have any dollars you only have whatever cryptoids whatever they want to call it um, and they have then they have conditions the dollars don't have I mean they're eminently untradeable right this is um a, a, an old silver dollar. If I can get a nice shot of it, mm. the buffalo on one side and the Indian on the other side. This is a totally tangible object, currently worth about twenty-five bucks. Um, it's practically indestructible. You can turn it into jewelry, maybe. But even if you turn it into jewelry, it's still it's still got its worth. Right. Um, and a, a dollar bill is not as good as that, but at least it's a dollar bill. It's a thing. And I do see obstacles to doing this, um, um, you know, total uh, elimination of cash. I think it was Nicholas Pelleggi who covered the mafia, um, who, um, who said, well, the, 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 the mob needs cash to run, and the mob is very powerful, and the gangs and the cartels and the drug trade, and all the politicians are bribed in cash. You know, the white envelopes go out. And so there are going to be obstacles that we don't see to this digital thing, but I, I believe that they, they're going to try. And, and I believe that in their consciousness, there are no natural limits. 
there's no place where they say, okay, this has gone far enough. Right, right. What do you see at, you know, who would you define as they and what is their agenda? Well, it would seem to be the agenda is total control of the human race. Um, <clears throat> the, the tracking of, uh, of, of every last person and their, and, their, and their movements. Now, you could say, why do people want to do that? But the thing is, the tyrants have existed for as long as history has been recorded. Genocides have existed for as long as history has been been recorded. And so this seems to be a thing inherent in the human condition. And technology tends to breed the desire to control. Mm. It, it facilitates that particular thing as a, as a state of mind. Um, and so the idea that you can suddenly, you know, control all of your employees because they're all on computers now, or you can track the location of uh, all the uh, UPS and FedEx drivers, you know, exactly how long they were at each stop and so forth. Um, you know, we're, I mean, we are already in this world. Um, the book 1984 predicts some of this, but it, it, it didn't predict that uh, that, you know, people would be running out and buying their telescreens and constantly upgrading them for better and better ones and voluntarily submitting to biometrics. That's a good it's, point. That's a good point. You know, it's, there's one reference I read it to about being able to afford a telescreen, but that, in the entire book, I only saw that once. And there's never any reference to them actually being bought or sold. They seem to be these antiquated objects that are just there stalking people everywhere and and i think that there's a um do you ever see the south park where um cardman um cons his way into getting a job at the nsa no no i mean I, i've i've had sporadic interfaces with south park over the years okay so if i may recommend it as one of the smartest things ever created and there's a scene in there where butters butters is the really naive kid he's the blonde kid who's constantly getting grounded um, gets on his knees and prays to the NSA to protect his family and his friends. Wow. Wow. That is twisted. Shaft of light really? coming in the window, the moonlight coming in the window. Incredible. He's very wow. earnest and right. Oh my goodness. So people, I think in a way feel good that this notion of this all spying omniscient God has now manifested in the form of basically living surrounded by cameras and audio devices. This feels good to people. It's not that it feels bad. And the problem that we have is how good it feels. Those of us who understand how bad it is, <laughs> we have this extra obstacle of people like, oh, I love this. I, I love that, you know, oh, what do I have to hide? You Nothing know, until what you did yesterday suddenly is illegal today. That is so true. Uh, I know that, um, you know, some people out there who are looking at um, sort of uh, eschatology, uh, biblical, biblical prophecies of the future and other other types of uh, eschatological data have said that really what we're moving into is not a dystopia. It is an extreme utopia. Mm hmm. And, uh, you know, that that really plugs into this analog versus digital uh, conversation that we're having and where this is being taken, where you will 
you will own nothing and be happy or whatever, you know. Um, hmm. that's, that's really a beautiful and sinister articulation of, of uh, this, this type of thinking that we're actually being conditioned to accept all of the surveillance, all of the uh, observation, the power over us, the digital currencies, the this, the that, but that ultimately, for the most, for most people, for most uh, you know, sheeple living in that environment, they're going to enjoy that life quite a bit, and that's why it's going to be successful. Mm-hmm. Well, I mean, certainly it feeds this fantasy world. I mean, one thing, one place I see things potentially going is that at a certain point, it's required that everyone wears an AI visor. <clears throat> and the AI visor allows you to recognize certain people and not others. So you might walk down a street in Manhattan and see the form of a person, but not see who the person is or the expression on their face. That's really, I'm, I'm making a note of that because uh, I like that. I'm going to steal that idea. <laughs> yeah. I mean, as far as I know, it's original. That's a, good one. Um, That's a really good one. It's, like it's original. That. So, um, and then another is um, uh, biosecurity zones. I mean, I read a phenomenal uh, re- description in, in 2020 that I and and my uh, the very sleuthiest of my research people could not find trace nor hide nor hair of this, uh, but it was a description of the, uh, the, the world under full uh, digital biosecurity zone conditions. It was an actual predictive description? Yeah, it was a predictive description of like, you know, the country divided up into split into different zones which they they pretty much did they they had their trial run of this in in 2020 trying to create you know to get onto your campus you'd have to flash your 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 qr code i mean to me to my warped way of thinking the greatest thing about a campus is i can just go stroll across it i can stroll across the harvard campus i can stroll across the cornell campus i can stroll across across the suny plattsburgh campus and merely look at the buildings and the and the people and what they did in 2020 and 2021 particularly when they started getting all these covey passes was they said no you can't even go on the berkeley campus without flashing your qr code right right this is so draconian that is, there's no words for it. For I mean, I'm I'm doing my best to describe it, but if if I were to say how bad I think it is, I I would sound like I was crazy. But I think it's almost as bad as it gets to to block off the the, the town square or the intellectual kind of commons of of the of the world. Well, look at all the censorship with social media and how they were shutting people people down. They were shutting down information uh, information access, and you're just extending that out into the analog, which I agree with you totally, Eric, is awful. I, I've spent years and years and years of my life on college campuses, and you know that is an abomination to me to not be able to just stroll across the campus, which was, for me, for many years, was a place of refuge and inspiration. Mm-hmm. Yes, as, as it should be. As it should be. You may not be able to afford to go to Harvard, but you can certainly walk across the campus and sit on a bench and talk to a professor. Absolutely. You know, think about all the the movies, uh, the, the the entertainment that we have that kind of rely on this this uh, this backdrop, the setting for really extraordinary 
uh, relationships to unfold and and situations like goodwill mm-hmm. hunting or you know w- this is what is inspiring to so many people who are of an intellectual bent and you take that away and you truly are kind of lost in the wilderness well and then moving everything onto zoom i mean they, they any, anybody who thinks you're actually getting an education online in my view is completely delusional look okay maybe you can take the theoretical part of the commercial driver's license test and you can study up on 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 the internet for for, for that but a, a literature seminar on the internet it's absurd i mean and my dad finally at age 80 or 81 quit teaching because he couldn't stand it mm. he just couldn't mm. stand it he taught and he taught interpersonal communication nonverbal communication uh, and and uh, and in the past, other mass media courses, but he—I was always wondering when he was going to retire, and he was just like, "Get me out of here! I can't do this shit online." Yeah, I, I cannot blame him at all. No, not at all. And, and how about first first grade? First grade? How about that? That's even crazier than having you know T.S. Eliot seminar online. Uh, the, um, <laughs> first kindergarten. Uh, when we look at the atrocities. Uh, that our children have suffered during the last two and a half years. That that's really where I think I, I my my fire gets most intense. I just get yeah. very very upset about that. You know, I try to you know <laughs> move on with my life, but that to me, because you're talking about irreparable harm and stunted development. Well, they've been conditioned to be a certain kind of a person, and that's the kind of person that they are intended to be that is correct it is afraid of the body of everyone else some of these social distancing things are still on the floor and when I were putting them down I was wondering when they were going to come up in most places they've they've come up but this notion that you have to stand apart from everyone is crazy you know Disney invented the line you know because the lines of Disney World are legendary and they invented the the kind of line where people would um it was i don't know what the word for it is but these zigzag lines oh right so they invented that and it's kind of fun yeah they had a they had to deal with not only the line taking less space but also the tedium of the line and and what was so interesting to people was kind of making all these miniature friendships while you were on the line so you'd walk past past the person and then you'd go your way and then mm. oh you'd walk past them again and like a dog you know if you've met a dog and then you meet him again you're old friends 30 seconds later so that's what it was like on these lines in disney world that's not a thing anymore now people want to be kept as far apart uh, as, as possible and, th- and that was done that smashing of the social order w- was a byproduct of of digital called COVID, but it was a byproduct of of digital. It was facilitated by, exploited by COVID, but it's a fact of life. All the, you know, in my article on the Woodstock Festival, which I'll send you, um, I'll I'll send to you if people are curious and want to listen to it. I I end the article by saying, what was being done during COVID started long, long before before COVID. People sitting in restaurants with uh, with with um, with their phones, ha- having two completely different experiences. 
I'm, I'm not saying this is bad, but it defeats the purpose of meeting your friend and going out to dinner, I think. Yeah, yeah. I just, um, I never wore a mask the whole time. I didn't do social distancing. I boycotted places that were asking for any of this kind of thing, all the vax passes and all of that. I mean, I basically just dropped out of society even further than I had already dropped out because believe me, I've been way out for a long, long time. So I've been in, in amazement watching people embrace all of this insanity and tyranny it's just been a real a really wild social experiment even as an observer i'm like you know because it brings up a lot of stuff in me and makes me ask a lot of questions and wonder what you know what's going on and that's one of the reasons i really like your notion of the digital versus the analog because if we're being trained in a certain way with a kind of programming uh then you know it begins to be a little more understandable how this might be happening on such a broad scale Mm mm-hmm well, we were already fully converted by January 2020. Society was soft enough. So this this helps answer the question, well, why didn't this work with AIDS? Why didn't it work with all the other attempted flus that they had tried to condition us for over the years? It didn't work because people weren't ready. They weren't ready to be uh, essentially colonized in right down to their physical body to the point where you could put the law up saying they they want the proposed law says we're going to come in your house and take you your friends and your cats and dogs even if we don't know your name merely on suspicion of having an infection and you can't get people riled up about this oh it's, it's this is it's not the planet i grew up on well, this so, i'm is- sorry i cut you off no, well, I mean, I, I cut you off too, but it just makes me think about some of the great literature, all the dystopian stuff that I read over the years, and even like a short story like The Lottery by Shirley Jackson, you know, where mm-hmm. people are simply willing to sacrifice their neighbor. Yep. So easily because of some strange reason that makes no sense. Yeah. Uh, I recently was introduced to a short story I can't believe that I had missed called uh, The Ones Who Walk Away from Omelas by Ursula K. Le Guin. I read that years and ago, if, I, if I'm, if I'm it's, remembering. It's just a, you know, the text is online. I think the whole story is 3,000 words. And um, the story is essentially that it's a perfect utopia with anything that you want. Yeah. But the cost of it is one child left in a fetid, disgusting room, swimming in his own shit. And, um, and that that's the cost of everyone else being happy. And I thought about that for weeks and weeks after I read and I thought, you know, where that child being made to swim in its own shit, mm. being locked in our house, and cut off, cut off, and um, convinced that our our mother is dangerous. You're right about that. And just, just so people know, this the ones who walk away from Omelas, and that's O M E L A S. Yep. And I will, I will put that in the show notes. Um, mm-hmm. And it really it brings us back to uh, well, I'm going to come full circle to where we started at, in the introduction, Eric, and talk a little bit about this this big scandal that erupted uh, recently 
And what I wanted to say as a way of, of kind of segueing into that topic is that we've talked a lot about they or them or the, the, the powers that be or whoever's trying to do all this top-down management of humanity. But we've also been exposing a lot of half-truthers and outright frauds in our midst, mm -hmm. people who clearly uh, don't have humanity's best interests at heart, even if they portray themselves that way. So um, could you just, you know, speak a little bit about, you know, your experience? I know you wrote this great um, planetwaves.fm on substack.com um, article, Charlatan's Web. And so I'm quoting your little line here. Our search for the scientific credentials of the latest COVID truth celeb turns up nothing. Pornima Waugh claims to have worked on analysis of 756 samples proving SARS-CoV-2 does not exist. Uh, did she? So, mm -hmm. you know, that's uh, just so people, if you're not aware of the story and you've been in the kind of uh, uh, COVID, uh, the health truth movement, this has been a really big story. I, I wanted to say, Eric, that I, every time I encountered uh, her uh, work, her interviews, that kind of thing leading up to this, I got this weird feeling and I've been, you know, sharing lots of blogs and putting things on my vlogs and, you know, that kind of thing, interviewing people. And I never so much as mentioned her name. I just had to, had this very strange feeling about it all. And then I started seeing some weird things in little snippets that I would tune into that people would share with me that didn't seem to add up. So then boom, the story erupts. And I felt, I guess a little bit vindicated, but also kind of sad, you know, and frustrated that within the movement itself, it can, you know, we can just be kind of blown to bits. Like a car bomb who, who, going off. Wait, who was blown to bits? <laughs> like the, 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 the movement, I, I felt like, I felt like this was some kind of weird plant, witting or otherwise, intentional or otherwise, that it also speaks to how fragile, uh, you know, a movement like the truth movement is because it can be fragmented, it can be fractured so easily and it only takes one lone wolf or one bad actor to do a lot of harm to what would otherwise be much more cohesive. It's almost like the, the story of the Tower of Babel. Oh no, they're coming together. They're gonna figure this thing out. They're gonna break the system and Nope, can't have that. We're going to destroy that. We're going to introduce uh, some kind of weird coding into their DNA, and then they're not going to be able to understand each other anymore. And mm. so here we are. Yeah. Well, she'd been putting the story out since 2020 um, in, in lower key ways. And the story had been circulating since mid-2020 of the samples from California that all tested negative for SARS-CoV-2, but positive for influenza A and influenza B. It was all so vague that to my knowledge, I never recorded it in my daily chronicling. Like I've been running a daily, uh, a running daily chronology of all these events going back to March 3rd, 2020. That's and brilliant. I heard of this- That's a brilliant thing you've done. And thank you for that. And then that became the chronology. And it's, as far as I know, it is in neither of, of those. Uh, because it was never tangible enough. It was always just so ethereal. It was always so, it was it was always disappearing like smoke. But I kept hearing about it, and we've got it all the way back to Purnima actually saying this in 2020, and then all of 2022 goes 21, and we believe my colleagues and I that there was kind of a sock puppet campaign of people 
essentially non-existent or captured names repeating it uh, mm -hmm. over and over again to kind of create this um, chain of title maybe or uh, some sense that it was substantial. Oh, I've heard that before. I've heard that before. I've heard that before. Then in March or April or something, she emerges as a kind of a celebrated figure telling the same story about the two degrees and 1500 samples and all this stuff. And I'm every time I listen to her, I, I'm thinking, when when is the interview going to ask a real question? <clears throat> Why aren't they asking a real question? And and it, it turned out that all it took to um, so-called take her down was asking her the title of her doctoral thesis. <laughs> That's not much. And and she tried to convince people that it was I was grilling her and treating her like a fraud and a criminal. The word fraud does not appear in the article except under her quotation. She said it, not me. I never called her a fraud or a liar. And I was very careful when I, at the end, and choosing the title, right at the end, I, I looked up the word charlatan to make sure that it too did not mean liar. It means a kind of a person who puffs up their importance or maybe imposters in a certain way. But I, I, I never, I've been accused of calling her a liar and a fraud. I, I never have. And, and in a way, I think she's kind of the perfect test case of um, of someone who senses a need in in the community and and puts that on like a mask and reflects people's own uh, ideas about themselves and reality back to them. But the problem was that it was very much a mask and it didn't stand up to any scrutiny. And so this has been one of the most interesting. Uh, and I've, I mean, I've done this a number of times in a number of different circumstances, even so far as having it blow up in the New York media or make the statewide wire and then end up in the New York Times and various different escapades like that. Uh, all people generally lying and deceiving to the public, basically. Uh, and this was an incredible experiment in the in the dynamics of the digital environment. Um, I, I was called I've been called a a shill of the globalists. I'd be like, <laughs> wow, that's what one is like? Ah, I want to meet more, more of those. Globalist, globalist shills. I'm actually a member of the Yes Men. They ain't no globalist shills. They're the most brilliant anti-corporate activists. And, and what they've done all through the digital age is they have impostered people and they showed and Andy and Mike, there's a, you know, the, the S-Men spread far and wide. And I was personally inducted into the S-Men by Andy in the bathroom of Grand Central Station. Oh, wow. During when I said, Andy, can I be in the S-Men? And he said, yes. So that's it. That's my claim to fame uh, of the S-Men. Um, and they got away with this impostering for as long as they wanted. They impostered ExxonMobil executives at oil conferences. They impostered housing and urban development at development conferences in, in New Orleans. They impostered the entire nation of Canada, put out a press release from Canada, and everyone printed it. The entire mainstream press went with it. They thought, oh, wow, it's a real press release from Canada. So what they showed was how easy it is to pull this shit off. 
And so Purnima walked through a door that was wide open. And we saw that happen. We saw how basically disinterested in, in not only vetting, right? I mean, when I've got a PhD on the show, I'm not making them send me a copy of their, of their PhD. That's ridiculous. But I'm going to ask them questions they should be able to answer as a PhD. And I know that when I'm talking to a PhD scientist, if in the discussion I make a blatant error, like I confuse lavage fluid and supernatant, which is like the difference between milk out of the cow and ice cream in the freezer, the, the, the scientist is going to slap me. I'm going to get it. No, <laughs> that's lavage. That's supernatant. Don't get those mixed up because I'm writing the story that represents their ideas, right? So I've done this uh, forever talking to these people and you, and what I found the most impressive about her was she was very sloppy in all, all of this stuff. Look, it took nothing. I'm telling you, all I had to do was ask for the title of her PhD thesis. That is it's amazing. ridiculous. It's ridiculous. So this, this demonstrates how credulous the, some of the presenters are. It demonstrates how credulous the public is. They want to largely be told what they want to hear. And my concern and my reasons for doing the story was I did not want someone who was hostile to the actual scientific question of whether SARS-CoV-2 had been isolated to be the one to splat her and also damage all the legit people doing it. So I had nothing against her personally. Really, I, I was acting in, in the interest of the legitimacy of the question. And it's a real question. So it was sort of a preemptive, Not, a preemptive strategy on your part. Well, you want to neutralize someone like that. Plus, look, it's a juicy story. It's a great story. And I, you know, that story could be printed out and used as a textbook example of classical investigative journalism. And right, you know, right down to the end, I, I was emailing her and said, look, if you've got something, we've got nothing. We can't find your claim of doctorates on a, on a CV or resume anywhere ever, not your LinkedIn, nowhere. Send me something. And she said she had nothing. She had nothing. Mm. And it was only after that that the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine confirmed when I said, you know, I put it to them. And I, this is like a game of chess. You really have to know how to put it to people, including the press office, to get a truthful statement out of them. And, you know, we verified it by two important different means. We have the dean and we had the press office. Both give the same answer. Wasn't there also some discrepancy in what we knew about her undergraduate degree or the school that she had attended? I believe there was, and and, and um, people are trying to pretend that there there wasn't. But uh, she claimed to be a finance major at Salisbury University in Maryland, and when you find the graduation program, she's listed as liberal studies. So the question is, can a finance major be listed? as liberal studies and it and the i got to the president's office so i got a spokesperson from the president's office who said uh that the finance degrees are under the business school 
and and um, liberal studies under the liberal studies school. So there's no overlap between them. Uh, and I haven't checked Alaska. I'm not really that excited about doing it. I mean, you know, I think I, we've pretty much heard the last of her, but we need to be keen to understand these people. And everyone in the digital age should have a traceable background. I think, to some extent. So it's interesting. The um, if you know, we have a lot of people out there sort of lauding the or you know, really applauding the 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 fact that we have so many citizen journalists, and a lot of them are doing a good job. And certainly, our mainstream media is. Well, you can't even call it journalism at this point in time, no. not, not in all honesty. Um, and yet this story highlights the need for some awareness of what real investigative journalism is. And it also highlights the need for more investigative journalists. I think, I think what it does not highlight is a need for every single podcaster out there in existence to be such a journalist because it's not going to happen. No, but in what, well, what is investigative reporting? I mean, investigative reporting is the follow-up question. I mean, really, in the, in the most um, wide sense of the term, investigative reporting is not printing the press release. Mm -hmm. Instead, you get the press release, then you call the person who wrote the press release, because I always put a number on it, and you say, yeah, buddy, what's that? Like, what's that? You said that in the press release. What do you really mean by that? So now we're now we're up to the investigative part. Investigative journalism is when you research something before you write about it. But I think more to the point, there needs to be some concept of standards and practices. I mean, for example, people called the article on Purnima a hit job. But it was not a hit job because A, she expected it coming. She had opportunity to respond to every assertion in the story, pretty much. I everything vexing or damning in that story comes right out of her mouth not out of someone else's mouth but the story was not a surprise and so you should never be written about by someone who does not call you and say Saul I'm going to press the story do you smoke Marlboro Lights we say you smoke them in the story and you say what are you kidding me I've never smoked a cigarette in my life you have a right to say that if you don't get the call it's a hit job. So you get the call, well, not, not so much a hit job. But the story should not surprise anyone. And we have extraordinary power doing what we're doing here. But it's a little like giving everyone on the street a, a 22 pistol mm -hmm. and uh, saying, now the whole world's a shooting range. I mean, if we're going to have a Second Amendment, at least we need the concept of downrange. Right. You know, this is where the Second right? Amendment amendment and the first amendment kind of butt heads a little bit well yeah but we're seeing the second amendment in, in, a, in a kind of its digitized form in terms of all these god knows where they come from but mass shootings um and the first amendment obviously has to grant a very wide berth but you know that's not really followed i mean I don't, you know, a broadcast license doesn't seem to be in, in the spirit of the First Amendment. Oh, I agree. I agree. I'm you just know? saying if you go full First Amendment, you know, then you try to police what people are saying, you know, with their ability to express beyond a certain uh, range, you know, it's just, it's all, it's all a bit of a quagmire. 
Yeah, and especially if you're libeled, you know, it's very hard to bring a libel suit. I mean, if you've ever really been libeled, and then you start to figure out libel law, um, it's 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 nearly impossible. Um, and particularly now in the kind of age of the public figure. So we have to have our own restraint. You know, we have to have the Saturn principle acting, mm. which means I, I have a code of ethics on my website. We have uh, terms of service and editorial policy right at the bottom of planetwaves.net. And you can read there my policy on astrology, my policy on science, my policy on satire. I mean, so right on my web, right on my editorial policy, it says, we use satire, we publish satire, and we don't label it as such. There, there you go. You don't like it, go read something else. But when I said when I'm writing an open letter to Anthony Fauci apologizing to him on April Fool's Day, which I did, I'm not going to say this is, a, this is a joke. Yeah, I apologize for being such a pain in the ass. And I'm sorry, I didn't just go along with everything. And I, it ruins it to say that it's a joke. So Absolutely. we therefore warn the public about this policy on pen names, policy on corrections, and so on and so on. Well, why don't we think that through and say, well, what is my what is my policy on what is newsworthy? So Purnima fell under the editorial policy that the opinion of a scientist is not a finding of science. It's only a finding of science if you can produce your data. So I asked her the question that I think journalists are supposed to ask, which is, where's your data? That's investigative reporting. Where's your data? You can sum the whole class up in three words. Well, you can, and yet you could write a wonderful book or ebook, go back to the Kindle thing, um, on this exact topic that could be enormously helpful to people, like a kind of just a kind of idiot's guide to doing yep. this. And I agree. I'm, I'm on it. I'm I'm on it. I I I'm, I really wish I had like, if I had three weeks, I could write the whole thing out. It's going right. to start with how to park your car at an event. Chapter one. Oh, that's parking. great. I love it. <laughs> I'll give I'll give away chapter one. Yeah. When you're a reporter covering an event and there's cars everywhere and parked down the road and all the way out to Timbuktu and you always go right up to the venue and look for a parking spot right in front of the place. And then work your way back, because the chances are, in my experience, maybe, you know, parking saints follow me around, but there's almost always a parking space that someone left right up front. I love it. I love it. Um, you know, the whole I've got like a lot of ideas. I started collecting them on this uh, on, on this episode. You know, so, Would yeah, great fun. Oh, yeah. So so uh, please keep us in the loop about that. Do you have any other projects that people might be interested in? Uh, you know, other other I don't know anything social social uh, venues or anything like that. Well, if anybody wants to come over and, and do an ambient rock music jam, you're invited. I do miss jamming with people. It seems like it's hard to pull that together these days. Uh, or maybe I'm just really old, but on the uh, let's see, Planet Waves FM is my current favorite thing. Uh, PlanetWaves.fm, and I I still write really one of the only truly literate, spiritually grounded horoscopes anywhere. If I if I if I could if I found the Planet Waves horoscope 
and I liked astrology, I'd be really happy because it's really a sensitive uh, thing that I try to write to the standards of somebody like Alan Watts or someone like that, you know, genuinely, um, you know, you know, questioning of, of reality and, and reassuring from a deeper spiritual place. Um, uh, so it's kind of a work of philosophy. Oh, you can tell it's very, it's very well written. It's very um, provocative and, and, and um, just invites a lot of introspection and also, I guess, uh, the opposite. Well, yeah, it, it is introspection. It is designed to be introspective, which is one of the real, um, let, let's say, um, worst things about the digital era that it's turned people inside out um, and uh, created this sense of there not being an inner life. Oh yeah, well let's let's get more readers on there for you. And uh, well, you're you're, do, you're doing just fine with that. But uh, I I thought we could have a discussion, and I could bring some of my audience over, and and maybe I thought we could also talk about some things that you might not get to chat about that much. Well, I do appreciate the opportunity to speak about astrology to a um, let's say a philosophically um, philosophically aware audience, which clearly yours is, because they wouldn't be listening to you if they weren't. <laughs> Well, very kind of you. I love your work. I, I'm really appreciative for everything you've been doing. The uh, the the chronicle of the of the pandemic is just a stroke of genius. I'm really really glad you've been doing that. Somebody needed to, and um, I will put links in the description. People can find you in various places, and uh, you know maybe maybe in a year uh, we'll uh, do a part two, and uh, and we'll have some really good news to share with uh, how we uh, got ourselves out of this mess. Well, it would be wonderful. I mean, I'll, I'll end on this note. You know, I was not very optimistic about Pluto in Aquarius. The, the part of that that could work is that it really points to the solution to this being a kind of a group initiation, which is what Aquarius is about anyway. So if we are willing to go through a group initiation, part of which is that the members of a group have to be individuated to a degree. It's not a group if the people in the group are not individuated or it, a, actively individuating, then it's just like mass, like in a football game. But if we're willing to do the work of individuating and self-actualizing and willing to surrender enough individuality to be able to work together, we can get through this. Well, I'd, if, like to, if. I'd like to end it right there because that's that's what I wanted to hear. I really felt like I, I, I wanted to hear you say that because I, I, mm -hmm. stating the possibility is very, very powerful. It is possible. And there may be islands of the future in a sea of the past, as the star, star seed transmission describes them. I'm a King Carey fan. Yep. <laughs> the bricklayer. The bricklayer. That's right. Well, listen, my friend, this was a pleasure and um, I will let you know when it's up. And uh, if you want to send me any links to include in my description, please do so. Wonderful. Saul, thank you very much. Thank you.